Can you believe it? It's been five weeks. This is week six that we've been together in the book of Habakkuk. Five weeks so far dedicated to this small book that a lot of people will just skip right over because in my, in my Bible, it's literally only two pages. We miss a lot, though, when we just skip this over. We've dedicated the first five weeks to just the first two chapters. We still have one more chapter to go. If you haven't been with us, let me catch you up to speed. Habakkuk is a prophet. Habakkuk is a prophet who lived in times where the nation of Israel, the kingdom, uh, the, the, the uh, chosen people of God uh, were split. They were splitting. They were falling apart at the seams. What was supposed to be God's chosen nation, what was supposed to be the nation that was set apart from all others, what was supposed to be the nation that exemplified and, and glorified and showed the rest of the world what God is like, was falling apart. There was impending doom on the horizon as the nation of Babylon, the, the, the imperialists, were just over the hill on the other side waiting to take over. And so Habakkuk goes to the source that he knows. And he cries out to God, God, when are you going to step in? Let me paint a picture for you as if you don't already know. All I see when I look outside of my house is death in these streets. All I see is people in pain. All I see is sorrow. All I see is injustice. And don't even get me started on the courts and the people who are supposed to advocate for us because they're not doing that job either. When, oh God, will you step in and do something? And God comes back to him and he's like, I'm raising up, I'm raising up a nation. I'm raising up the people of Babylon. I'm going to let them come in and take care of you. I'm going to let them come in and squash you out. And he's like, Habakkuk's like, hold on, I have to have a problem with that because, because what you're saying is Babylon. What I know of Babylon is that they are far more evil than we are. They are far worse off than we are. See, they, 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 they enslave people for sport. What they've been doing is, is, is they've been taking people and they've been forcing other people, the ones that they don't kill and that they deem worthy enough of building up a purpose for them, we, we, we've been, they've been taking their culture and forcing them to assimilate to their own, forcing them to, 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 to participate in their culture. But in their culture, they're going to stay the lowest of the low. So can you please explain to me how that is justice. Can you please explain to me how that is mercy? Can you please explain to me, God, how this works out and how I'm supposed to keep this consistent with the loving, just character about you that I've been told? Can you help me with that? For the last three weeks, we've been looking at these these five woes, if you will, that, that God gives immediately after that to remind Habakkuk and to remind us today of exactly who God says he is. God says, allow me to remind you that I despise systemic oppression. Allow me to remind you that I do not endorse the employment of unjust economic statuses to keep 
practices to keep the poor the poor and the rich the rich. Allow me to remind you that I don't like that. Allow me to remind you that I actually despise shame. May I take you back to the very beginning where I never intended shame, where everything I made was good, where everything I made existed in harmony, where everything I made was right, and it was actually you that introduced shame? Yes, sir. May I remind you of that? May I remind you that back at Mount Sinai when I gave the Ten Commandments, because at the time, ten rules was all you was about to handle. I told you first not to put any other gods or any other thing before me. Yes, sir. May I remind you that on a list of ten commands, I said, first off, do not put anything before me. Can I remind you of that? Don't doubt for a second, Habakkuk, that I have strayed from my character and that I don't have a plan for exactly what's going on. You know very little of my plan. What's funny to me is how when we are reminded of who God is, when we are reminded of the true character of God, isn't it interesting how perspective and heart begin to change. Isn't it interesting how when we focus on the true character of God, the things we know to be true, the things that he says about himself, isn't it funny how our outlook changes? And that's exactly what we're going to read today. Listen to the drastic shift that Habakkuk has made in comparison to the beginning. If you have your Bibles with, uh, with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Habakkuk. We've made it to chapter 3, but let's remember in chapter 1 all of Habakkuk's complaints. When are you going to do something? All I see is injustice. All I see is crime. All I see is death. When, when God, are you going to step in? And now listen to his tone in chapter 3. Let's read just the first two verses to start. It says, this is a prayer. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. So now, so we praying now. So, 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 so we singing now. Two chapters ago, you were like crazy upset. You were, you were heartbroken. You were devastated. You were crying out to me, when are we going to do something? So we singing now, though. We're praying now, though. Verse 2 says, I have heard all about you, Lord. And I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember mercy. I picture Habakkuk sitting out on his porch and looking out and at sunset, just before it's dark, Seeing the silhouettes of the Babylonian military. And as he sees the threat on the horizon, as he sees the inevitable destruction, as he sees the end right there, he prays. He sings, he writes a song. And he remembers. 
He remembers the things that, that God has done before. This book starts with his complaints against God for, for Habakkuk not seeing justice. And then he learns about his people's impending doom at the hands of, of Babylon. He was, he, he, he was taught that in this section. He's like, oh my gosh, it's actually worse than, than when I first started yelling out to you. But then, how can that be just? How can that be right? Certainly, you don't mean that. But then after being reminded of who God is, after being reminded by God that God does see the wickedness, that God does stand against oppression and shame and degradation and idolatry, after being reminded of all of this, his perspective changes. His heart changes with the enemy on the horizon, Habakkuk remembers God and God's amazing works. And the fact that now that I think about it, you're right. God, you have been up to this for quite some time. Habakkuk is staring down the barrel of what will likely be the end of his nation, but he's no longer shaking a fist. Instead, Habakkuk says he's in awe of God and he prays for more of God. He prays for God's mercy. He says, I, I no longer question that you are angry, God. As a matter of fact, while you're anger, angry, please remember your mercy. In the impossible seasons of life, do we remember God? Amen. When the enemy is on the front lines, when, when that thing that has been a threat to us for a long time is knocking on our doorsteps, do we remember God? Do we remember how incredible he really is? Do we remember that this problem in this situation is not unique to us? When everything around us is falling apart. And I don't know how you want me to face this anymore. Do we remember God? Or do we turn to ourselves at that point? What's like the level? Like how close do you let that threat get before you're just like, man, forget God. I got me. I got to figure this out now. Or we begin looking left and right. We begin looking for other things to find our hope and our faith in. Before we get mad and we give up on God, do we remember that actually we are the ones that are guilty? Before we get mad and we give up on God, do we remember that we are the ones standing before him in need of justification, not the other way around? The shift that Habakkuk has in chapter 3 verse 2 is him realizing that while he's shaking his angry fist and he's upset, Naturally and logically so. He's come to terms with the fact that he is guilty and he is the one in need of a savior. Yes. The things happening around him are a result of the fallen world that we contribute to. And while maybe the injustice and the crime and the murder is not a direct result of Habakkuk himself, it certainly is a direct result of the fallen world that we live and participate in. And so our cries are not actually the things that are happening against us. The, the, the cries are actually against a fallen world. 
that need saving, against people that need saving, against our hearts that need saving. And in this realization, he doesn't fold his arms, sit down, and pout like I believe in my whole heart my three-year-old would. He doesn't wait for the impending doom and whatever bad things are coming to just overtake him. Habakkuk desires God. Habakkuk desires more from God, of God, to be with God. Habakkuk desires God's intervention. Habakkuk desires God's mercy. Habakkuk desires God's restoration. In what could be one of the hardest moments of his life, Habakkuk turns to desiring God. Do we remember God? And when things get hard, do we desire him still? And as Habakkuk begins praying and writing, something shifts. Something shifts. Actually, this entire book and its progression shifts, starting in verse 3. Habakkuk says, I see God. I see God moving across the deserts from Edom. The Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens and the earth is filled with his praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from his hands where his awesome power is hidden. Pestilence marches before him. Plague follows close behind. When he stops, the earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. I see the people of Kishon in distress and the the nation of Midian trembling in terror. It's a shift. When I was growing up, uh, I lived in the south for a little while. Something you might not know about the South, Mississippi specifically, is that at least at that time and at least where I was at, everybody and their mother loved professional wrestling. Like loved it. Like it was actually kind of weird, but you didn't think about it at the time. Just don't think too hard about it. Loved professional wrestling. And so I inevitably, because of my surroundings, also got into professional wrestling. Loved it. When I was growing up, there was, this, there was this group of wrestlers called the NWO. I know y'all pretending. I know y'all pretending like you're not with me. But I know for a fact at least 80% of y'all was with me. I know you were. But what was crazy about the NWO was that, was that every show ended the same when they were running stuff. Every show ended the same. We're like during the main event. Inevitably, all like 8, 10, 15, 20 of these dudes would come out to the ring and just everybody would just beat up the good guy. Everybody would just pile on and just absolutely wreck the good guy. And you're like, oh my gosh, here we go again. These big old bullies. 
These big old imperialists calling themselves the New World Order. Here they come, just kicking and beating up everybody, all 8, 15, 20 of them, just beating on one good guy, and I'm upset. And then something would happen. The lights would go out, and music would hit. A spotlight would come down to the middle of the ring, and out of the rafters, one man would fall from the ceiling, coming down to get the NWI. You watch 8, 15, 20 of these dudes shake in terror, looking back like, oh my gosh, it's one person. And this one person would land in the ring with his face all painted up, looking all swole as heck, no shirt on, and with a baseball bat. And with a baseball bat and his fist, he would beat up five, eight, 15, 20 dudes, and the entire arena would go nuts as the music played and the lights would shine and bodies were being thrown everywhere. The arena is going bananas. Everybody's going crazy because one man, one hero, came in and wrecked everybody. What we're reading right here is the lights go out. Eventually, the lights on evil nations like Babylon, the lights of this unjust world, the lights of this world, this cold place that doesn't care about us are going to go out. And we're going to hear music. And one single light is going to shine as we watch one man, one God, one greater than all else wreck everything that has been plaguing us for generations. God, God's music hits, if you will. When Habakkuk is praying for mercy, as, God's, as Habakkuk's heart all of a sudden is Yearning for God, God's music hits just in time. And he comes through, and what he's describing here is God coming just in time to save the day. To beat up the enemy and to allow for a shift. And in his language, I don't have time to get into all the little, all the little things going on here, but, 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 but Habakkuk is remembering the exodus. He's remembering, as a matter of fact, now that I think about it, God, now that I'm after you, God, now that, I'm, now that my heart is directed towards you and not, and not against you, I'm actually remembering that you've been at this for a minute. And I remember a time, this actually isn't the first exile that's going to occur. I remember once upon a time, my people were also enslaved. I remember they were, they were, they were, they were in Egypt and it was bad. And I remember we went to Pharaoh and, 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 and we tried to let Pharaoh to let him go and he wouldn't let him go. And then I remember that your music hit in the form of plagues, but it was music nonetheless. And you intervened. I remember as your people were escaping, I remember that you parted the sea so that they could escape. I actually remember that you've done this before. Habakkuk believes in a day where God is coming like he did in Exodus. Now what Habakkuk didn't get to see was the day God's music hit and his son Jesus made his debut. 
And Jesus came to this earth and it was his life, his death and his resurrection that defeated the enemy and declared victory, sealed that victory as a matter of fact for all of his people once and for all. But before Jesus left, before Jesus left, he reminds us that he's coming back. I got to pause right here and I got to ask, in the hard times, When the enemy is at your doorsteps, with tears in our eyes and pain in our hearts, do we still believe that God is coming back? Do we still believe that God is on the way? Do we still believe that just as he did in Exodus, just as he would to Babylon, just as he did for Jesus and just as he will do for us, do we believe That God is coming back? Do we believe that He's on the way? Do we believe that all of this somehow is leading to our rescuing? Do you believe that God still intervenes? That He doesn't leave us abandoned? Do you believe that, that the victory that God sealed? on the cross and by getting Jesus up out of that tomb is still relevant to the battles that you're facing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God still declares victory over your life, over our circumstances, over our communities? Do you believe that? It gets even better. I think this is probably my favorite section of the entire book. Go back to verse 8. Habakkuk continues, he says, Was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? Were you mad at the rivers and the sea? No. You were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled onward, swept and raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands to the Lord. The sun and the moon, you know how those always rotate? Well, yeah, they stood still in the sky as your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. Verse 12, you marched across the land in your anger and you trampled the nations in your fury. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crush the hands of the wicked and strip their bones from head to toe. With his weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel was going to be easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses and the mighty waters piled high. How many of you know that when God moves, there is not one thing that can stand in his way? How many of you know That not even the mountains that will stand for what we perceive as eternity stand a chance when God moves. How many of you know that that when the sun and the moon were set in the sky and that they're in the rotation, that, that as a matter of fact, if God wanted to and when he moves, he can stop them dead in their tracks. Been moving this way for centuries, but if it's God, he can move. There is no immovable object Habakkuk is is flexing right here. Habakkuk is actually a brilliant 
dope writer. He's flexing God's continued power over creation by taking the things we saw God create in the beginning. The sun and the moon, the stars, the water, vegetation, the mountains. We saw God create that in the beginning and he's reminding us that God still has control over those, and that in the end, it will be God that moves those. Habakkuk is also taking images from Canaanite mythology. He's He's taking references that are appropriate to the culture that he's writing to. He's taking other people's ideas and methodology, and he's like, watch how I spin this now. They talk about elements and gods as gods and weapons and how they're at war with each other. And in one of the most brilliant samples the world has ever seen, Habakkuk demonstrates all throughout that I can take elements from all your stories and show you how my God is still greater than what you're talking about. As God moves, it's going to get messy. A whole lot of people's beliefs are going to be jacked up. A whole lot of things that, that the devil had as strongholds for a long time are going to get messed up. A lot of people's mentalities, a lot of things that people thought would stand till the end of time are going to get smacked out into oblivion. It's going to get messy. And nothing stands a chance when God chooses that day to come and to rain down like that. Nothing will stop it. But look closely In this passage, because it's not total destruction. Did you catch that? The danger of casual reading is we miss that God is not totally destroying. But what we see in this passage is the marriage between God's divine judgment and God's gracious care. Look at verse 8. Was it in anger that you struck the rivers and part of the sea? Were you displeased with them? No. You were sending chariots of salvation. Look at verse 13. More explicitly. You went out. Verse 12 says, you marched across the land in anger. You trampled nations in fury. Oh my gosh, total destruction. Except for verse 13, you went out there. The reason you're going across the land, the reason you're trampling nations, the reason you're even stepping foot on this creation in the first place is because you're going out to rescue your people. You're coming to save those that you have anointed. There is a promise of hope and salvation for God's people. This passage unlocks the perspective that we should have had all along. You ever do that, get to a point in a movie or a really good book? That one key passage to the entire thing changes the way you would have read page one? This unlocks the perspective we were Meant to have. The perspective that I bet God wished Habakkuk would have begun with. God does not ignore wrongdoing. Nor does God allow oppression to go unpunished. God consistently, all throughout scripture and even today, remembers his promise to his people. And he acts on their behalf. This is the real answer to Habakkuk's complaints. 
The others were responses. This is the answer. And he says, in the most shocking upset of all time, God's kingdom comes. And those who have been oppressed are given the victory. Those who have long been beaten, those who have long been mourning, those who have long been on the bottom of the world's destruction are given the victory. That's the way the kingdom works. I don't have time to go there, but we see it in the person of Jesus all the time. And as my brother up north always says, you want to know what Jesus is like, or you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. We see it in Jesus all the time. He takes concepts that we think are sure, concepts that we think are just the way the world works, and he says, not in my kingdom. That's not how it's going to go here. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how great you are. I don't care how much you have. In, the, in my kingdom, that's not the way it works. It isn't our status on earth. It's not our strength or our possessions or anything else we have. As a matter of fact, what determines our salvation is the direction and the condition of our heart towards him. That's it. That's what determines us being saved on this day. That's what determines our body not being tossed out of the ring, but rather be the one that he stands over and says, uh-uh, not no more. God shows his response to his own creation in two ways. If the heart is hard, if the heart is selfish, if the heart is building its own empire, God will bring judgment. If our hearts are hard, if our hearts are selfish, if our hearts are not considering our neighbors, if our hearts are after building our own stuff, our own empires, our own ideas. If our hearts are not focused on the things of God, God will bring judgment. Yes, but if the heart is right, if the heart is ready, if the heart is receptive and centered on him, then God brings restoration. God brings the opposite. He begins to put pieces back together. He begins making broken people look a lot more like what they were meant to look like when he created the Garden of Eden way back in the beginning. Is your heart right towards God? Has the tragedy, the death, and the injustice of this world hardened your heart? Has it caused you to look elsewhere for answers? Or even still, do you still desperately desire God? Yes. Is your heart still His? Yes. There's this banner that's been up here for a few years. It says, Unite. Renew, restore. It's our mission as a church. If we want restoration for ourselves, for our communities, for our city, if we want restoration, then it's got to start in this room. Our hearts must be right with God. 
Our hearts have to be right towards God. Pastor, you've been talking this entire time, and, 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 and I think I've been tracking with you, but how do I know if my heart is right? Let's do a brief self-check. God tells us throughout Scripture to get rid of pride and self-righteousness. Is that what's in your heart? Pride and self-righteousness? He says, have nothing to do with grudges, malice. Get rid of the anger that's in your heart. Is that what's in there? Don't be out here talking bad about people either. I need you to get gossip up out your heart too. Is that what's in there? Remember what I said first when I gave you the rules originally? I said, don't put anything else before me. Is your heart after anything else other than me? Have you put anything else in the seat that I'm trying to sit on? What about that shame you've been feeling? Is that what runs your heart? That shame that you ain't been talking about with the person next to you, you don't even want to let them know, but it's been with you for a while. Is that what's ruling your heart? We got to get that out of there. What about hypocrisy? You the one that everybody's been talking about? Out here preaching and worshiping on Sunday, but then let me catch you on Friday, Saturday night. That's you they've been talking about? It's hypocrisy in your heart? What's in there? But when we give our heart to God, when our heart desires God, when we allow the sacrifice that he made through Jesus Christ to be enough, when we allow the presence of the Spirit into our lives, when we allow that, our heart then is made new. Our heart then breaks for the things that breaks the Lord's heart. We can't turn a blind eye. We can't ignore it. We can't not look at it and do something about it. Our new hearts have faith in Christ only. Not no, not no five-step book, no media outlet, no athlete, nothing. Our heart has faith in Christ only. Our new hearts are set on things that are godly and kingdom-oriented. A way where God wins. I'm not worried about this if this is more of a win for me or more of a win for the person next to me. I'm more worried about is this a win for God? Our heart yearns for more of God. We can't help it. We want to we wanna know and have entrenched in our minds and our hearts Bible verses the same way we want hip-hop verses. We want to move to the beat that God is on just like we want to move to the beat in the club, but more so. And our new hearts are honest. It's not about becoming a person who wouldn't or who doesn't, I should say. It's about becoming a person who never would. It's not about being a person who denies themselves cheating on their wife. It's about becoming a person who never would. It's not about becoming a person who denies themselves drunkenness. 
It's about becoming a person that the only type of drunkenness they're trying to get hip to is that from the Spirit. That's what our new hearts do. Guys, if we want to see restoration in our city, if we want to see restoration in our lives, I cannot, I cannot communicate to you how enough how important this is. It's got to start here with our own hearts. It's got to start with our own hearts. Where's your heart at? What we're going to do now is we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And again, I cannot place, there's no dramatic effect that I can give you. There's no, there's no entrance music I can play to emphasize how important response is this morning. I encourage every single one of you in your seats to check your heart, to check your general disposition towards God. Where's it been? Where's it at? Let's remember the day that the Lord promises is coming. Let's remember that those whose heart is one way will be judged. But those whose heart is honest, those whose heart yearns for God, those whose heart may be hurting but has ultimate trust in the Lord, that heart is restored. Do you want to be restored? Do you want to be restored? Do you want those around you to be restored? Then we've got to take care of that today.